questions podcast from those nerdy girls at Dear Pandemic. Here on the podcast, we chat with experts across many disciplines of science to explore how our interconnected world is being reshaped by the COVID-19 pandemic. Find us on our website at dearpandemic.org. I'm your host, Dr. Malia Jones, hybrid social infectious disease epidemiologist at UW-Madison's Applied Population Laboratory and editor-in-chief at Dear Pandemic. I'm joined today by Michael Lenz. Dr. Lenz is an Associate Professor of Urban Planning and Public Policy at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Policy and an Associate Faculty Director of the Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies. Uh, Dr. Lenz and I have had the opportunity to work together a little bit before when I was at UCLA, and uh, his research and mine overlap a little bit. He studies uh, policy solutions to housing market inequities and how inequality in the housing market, like segregation, eviction, schools, um, and housing supply can lead to negative outcomes for families that are low income and for people of color. So thanks for joining me today, Dr. Lenz. I am really excited about getting your expert take on some of these housing market factors that are involved with how COVID-19 is unfolding in the United States. My pleasure, great to see you. Yeah, good to see you. So just let's dive right in. Um, We have seen in the news that uh, one of the earliest hotspots in the United States for COVID-19 was in New York City. I have observed, um, especially coming from Los Angeles to Wisconsin, that we very often think of urban and rural as as binary. You know, it's either urban or it's rural. Um, And I've seen some commentators say things that are uh, kind of implying that the the population density is the reason for those hotspots to have emerged. And I'm wondering if you have um, some thoughts about what factors related to housing put certain neighborhoods at risk in New York City uh, in terms of being early on in the outbreak? Yeah, you know, I think I I often like to separate density and crowding in housing, right? And so, and these things can certainly be related, right? Um, But, you know, density has more specifically to do with um, the, you know, how, how many people live per square mile, right? And overcrowding is specifically, or crowding is more, is like how many people per room in a, in a housing unit. Um, and, and these things are certainly related, you know, in very, uh, sometimes in dense urban environments, you have people living in, in smaller, more people living in, in smaller spaces. Um, and I don't, I certainly don't think that we know enough about either factor in, in, in COVID transmission to kind of make definitive claims about like, you know, should we be worried about density in urban yeah. areas from a public health perspective? Or should we be, I think we should always be worried about overcrowding. Um, yeah. From a public health perspective. 
and I, I mean, I guess I should say, I know you don't study pandemics in general, right. so. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but I do, I mean, you know, when you look at the neighborhoods that were early on, they weren't the most densely um, populated neighborhoods. You know, it wasn't Manhattan right. that right. picked off first. It was really um, Queens and Brooklyn. So right. I think that's an interesting point. Yeah, and I think, you know, it certainly, um, you know, as this disease has spread throughout the country, you know, you, you certainly couldn't, you, you certainly can find countless examples of um, not particularly dense urban or rural environments who were where there have been hot spots. Um, and one thing that I think we keep finding, we keep seeing is, is institutionalized populations, right? Whether that's jails and prisons, um, of which this country has more uh, per capita than anywhere in the world, uh, and then, and also nursing home settings, right? And those, you know, those places are not typically, you know, they're not typically found uh, at a, it, I mean, certainly jails and prisons are not found in dense parts of central cities or, or in major cities. Um, and like the transmission is not, had, does not have anything to do with the built environment from whence they come or from whence like their uh, family members who may visit come, right? Um, so, you know, I, I think like, you know, certainly as, as the disease has, has spread throughout the country, we're seeing lots of places, you know, like Phoenix right now, which is a very car dominated environment. It's, you know, not densely populated. It's, it's has a lot of people, but not, uh, but spread out over vast geographic space. Um, and there are clearly other factors at play in, in transmitting that virus to yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. So what are some of the housing policies that you see as playing an important role in, in terms of how the pandemic unfolds? And I'm also wondering if there are policies that you think are part of the solution in, in terms of recovery and, and supporting the, especially communities of color. Yeah, so, you know, I think like the, the kind of public health connection to, to housing, you know, is, is certainly a little less um, connected to my uh, expertise. Um, and, you know, again, I, I think that, you know, as far, as far as like how we build our cities with uh, a pandemic or public health mindset, again, I think is still yet to be determined. Um, the main things I, I, I worry about uh, from a housing perspective right now are, are the very short and immediate term um, losses of income that people have, and um, the fact that they were already very tenuously housed. There are a lot of people, um, you know, especially where I live in coastal California, that were spending huge amounts of their money on rent, and therefore were, you know, the loss of one paycheck or two paychecks away from being foreclosed on or, or in, in many more cases being evicted. Um, that, you know, we have had some very short-term policy interventions, you know, both in kind of unemployment support and income support, um, but, and also like eviction moratoria, um, but there's not a great answer across the country, um, or even in, in most jurisdictions about what happens when the eviction moratoria are lifted and people are still, 
you know, and we're still struggling at 20% unemployment and people are still not able to pay, right? Um, you know, eviction moratoria did not say, did not um, really in, in any cases uh, cancel the rent or lower the rent, right? There, there are some programs of, of rent forgiveness or assistance to landlords, extra assistance to, to renters, um, but again, those are kind of patchwork solutions that have been rolled out in just some places. So um, the, the more immediate term issue is definitely gonna be keeping people housed and keeping people where they were without, you know, people going completely into debt or losing their savings. Um, and then, you know, I think in the kind of longer term horizon, I think, you know, we can't, you know, speaking particularly as somebody living in, in Los Angeles, like we came into COVID with a very dramatic housing crisis, particularly on the rental side. And we haven't really fixed this, the, the kind of systemic problems there. Yeah. I really worry a lot about the cyclical nature of crowding being a risk factor for the pandemic and crowding and institutionalization um, also being a product of, of people losing their homes. Um, you know, I think um, certainly I know one of the Dear Pandemic collaborators works with a homeless shelter and they're, they're really struggling because it's a very difficult place to manage an epidemic. And I worry a lot about um, those things kind of feeding back into each other. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, early on in, in, in March, you know, in, in Los Angeles, I think the city, you know, largely started scrambling. You know, they, they made a stay-at-home order and then were faced with um, the problem where there's, a, there's you know, 60 to 70,000 people on any one night in LA County that um, don't have a home to stay at. And right. so, so, you know, one one kind of quick solution was to use uh, you know places like public places like community rec centers and gyms like um, to house people. Well, that's not a good place because <laughs> you've got right, right. you know twenty people in a you know not particularly ventilated space, right? And yeah. so there's and trailers and you know there's uh, a lot of different ways to to you know try to thread that needle. Um, but then, you know, what, what happens when, um, you know, those orders have, have certainly been relaxed already, but then, like, how do you unwind, you know, I think particularly in the LA homelessness crisis, like, how are we going to unwind some of the, again, patchwork supports that we put in place, um, but, you know, they, they had a, a goal of, of putting um, 15 you know, 15,000 people into hotels. They, I think, housed something like 3,000 um, after, you know, months of work mm -hmm. on that. And so, like, even the things that they've kind of, that they scrambled to do, they didn't do to the extent that, that they uh, initially planned. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, one of the things that, uh, one of the overlaps in our work is is looking at, uh, home ownership and families of color and mm -hmm. and uh, wealth accumulation and you know we saw after the great recession that um, 
in the foreclosure crisis that families of color um, were the most at risk for losing the wealth that they had accumulated in terms of equity in their homes. Do you, what do you see as the um, as a totally leading question? But do you see that as being a, a big problem in this pandemic? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, you know, there's there's been you know several waves of injustice. Um, you know, particularly, uh, you know, particularly targeting, I would say, African Americans, but not just African Americans. Um, as this last three months or so have unfolded, right? We, we, you know, came to see rather early on that um, black it, black people were disproportionately, obviously, infected with COVID, and we, you know, obviously, spent the last um, three or four weeks. Um, you know, working like heck to to understand and deal with um, the crisis of, of American policing and, and the violence inflicted from that. Um, and then, like you know, you mentioned like you know wealth loss during the Great Recession, and you know, coming in the in the in the recovery of the last eight eight or so years coming out of the Great Recession. It was also the you know blackest and brownest parts of um, American metropolitan areas that saw the slowest gains back to you know the, the kind of 2007 um, levels of, of housing wealth and, and value. So that's another hole that they were already that 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 black and and, uh, and brown communities were already in. And you know a lot of the eviction and homelessness crises that, that I was talking about before, which you know is 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 largely informed by you know my knowledge of Los Angeles, but not entirely. Um, that's a very disproportionate black and brown problem. Whether you're looking at eviction, um, I mean eviction, the disproportionate effect, particularly on black women, black mothers. Um, is a is a nationwide a well well understood nationwide phenomenon at this at this point. Um, you know, in Los Angeles, something like you know nine percent of the population identifies as African American, and forty percent of the homelessness population identifies as African American. So, some of these very acute rental problems, rental affordability problems, um, you know, at the, at the very that have like the biggest impact on, on people's lives and outcomes are clearly, um, you know, uh, disproportionately borne by by black households and, and households of color more generally. Yeah, yeah, and I um, there are good historical reasons why that is the case. I mean, we have a long history in this country of explicitly racist housing policy that prevented black Americans from becoming stable homeowners, and those are still affecting families to this day. Um, I'm not telling you that, because you know that, I'm telling our viewers. So let's just wrap up with this. This is my last question. Um, if we want to learn more about housing inequality and how it reproduces racism and, and class structures in the US, what resources would you recommend for a beginner? A book or a podcast, where would we start? Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, there's, you know, I think like um, the, the the housing problem 
you know, at least to, to me, is, is very multifaceted and, and as, you, as you've stressed, has, has historical roots, right? And, and when I say multifaceted, like, I think we've, we've failed in housing on, a few, on, on multiple fronts and, we, and our housing solutions need to have multiple aspects to them. Um, and I kind of emphasize like the more acute crises of eviction and homelessness. But the fact is like, you know, we have, um, we have not, in, in a lot of places, we just haven't built enough housing of, of all types. You know, we don't build enough um, housing, uh, you know, even at, mar you know, market rates. We don't build, enough, we certainly don't build enough affordable housing and we certainly don't subsidize people to afford the housing that exists. And so, like the more, you know, I always encourage people to, to really kind of not think about one solution in housing, one cause in housing, but to, in our housing problems, but to look at places that, look at material that kind of treat, treats it as a multifaceted problem. One book that um, I think is very good at that specific thing is, is Randy Shaw's uh, Generation Priced Out. It's a very recent book. Um, uh, Shaw uh, is a longtime uh, you know, lawyer and advocate um, in, in San Francisco, and so he brings in a you know kind of a, a, a largely a, a homeless advocate, uh, eviction advocate perspective. Um, you know, so very humane um, in his in his writing and thinking, but also has a very deep policy knowledge that. Um, that he can connect, that he connects to different locations in the country. Um, you know, that's great. Richard, I have read that one. Yeah, um, and more, and then more of the history, like Richard Rothstein's *The Color of Law*. Yeah, is that's a, a great is book. A, is a is a good option if you want to kind of understand like how race is intertwined in both public, not just the not just private decision making in housing, but very much in, in public policy over. Uh, over the years, and not just kind of racially explicit public policy, but a lot of uh, you know a, a lot of kind of colorblind ways that we, we make policy. Um, and I think you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates's uh, essay in the Atlantic, "The Case for Reparations," is a lot of that is about housing. You know, yeah, a lot a lot of his a lot of the case he makes is that 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 theft of black wealth and black income goes back you know obviously like of course you know slavery is the original sin but this country continued to extract wealth from black people and black families and communities long after that went by yeah. and and um you know, well, I mean, as recently as the mid 2000s with predatory lending, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and I'm sure there's an even more recent example. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and so like, yeah, that, that I think is, is uh, it didn't, I don't feel like it got as much, you know, the, 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 the headline is the case of reparations and that feels, that's such a loaded word for so it's many such people. such a loaded word, I know. Yeah. But it, you know um, what, I think it's time to put that word on the table. So I appreciate that essay and, the, and you suggesting it. Of course, yeah. Okay, well, I am going to let you go. Thank you so much for joining us and for educating us. We really appreciate it.
My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. This has been the I Have Questions podcast from those nerdy girls at Dear Pandemic. If you have a COVID question, you can submit it on our website at dearpandemic.org. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And subscribe to our podcast, I Have Questions, wherever you get podcasts or at anchor.fm slash dearpandemic.